Have you ever thought you had a better idea than God's idea? I think it happens all the time. It happens in uh, Christians' lives and churches' lives, of course, in the lives of unbelievers, but in society even. uh, We see uh, many churches, for example, who have decided that they're going to pattern their leadership after corporate America. And so instead of having church leaders, for example, that are godly, above-reproach pastors, they look for someone who's going to be a good CEO. And uh, they think, well, we've got a better idea than what God says in His Word. And so they find a good CEO, and when he's not as good of a CEO, they look for another good CEO. And in that kind of scenario, the, the leaders of the church become the stockholders, in the religious company, and the congregation becomes consumers. And uh, that's a dangerous path to follow, because once the congregation learns how to be a consumer of uh, Christian ideas, then uh, maybe uh, one church isn't giving them what they want, and so they'll go to another, like trying to decide whether to go to Burger King or McDonald's. And so the, the entire idea of The depth and the meaning and the blessing of church membership is lost. Why? Because someone thought they had a better idea than what God put in His Word. I see this this concept of having a better idea than God, this this, uh, false idea. Uh, Also, when we talk about marriage, I mean, God's Word is uh, very specific. It says that we should not be unequally yoked and that our... our, uh, a spouse should be a believer in the Lord, but a lot of people, a lot of Christians say, well, you know, I've got a better idea. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to marry an unbeliever, and they think that somehow that they're going to be the first Christian in the history of Christianity to be happy with that, um, that they're going to break the mold, even though the entire history of Christianity has never worked out well, that the Christian has always had his or her faith diminished, uh, spiritually wounded, and and in, in, in general, unhappiness comes into that marriage. They find out eventually that they were wrong, but they thought, well, I've got a better idea than God. Uh, you see it even in society when people are talking about gender. I mean, God is very clear in His Word. He's very clear in biology that you're either male or female. It's not that hard to figure that out. Uh, but people today say, well, we've got a better idea. We're just going to let people choose whether they feel like whether they identify as a male or a female. And I've been thinking about this. I think that I want to identify as someone in a lower tax bracket come April 15th. Uh, see how that works out for me. But, uh, but, you know, after a tremendous push by the government and mainstream media and Hollywood and society in general to affirm people's decisions to ignore the reality of sexuality, the people that buy into that actually become tragically more empty than they were before. And it's because something is missing, and what is missing is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Well, we could go on and on with a lot of different examples of how we think that we've got a better idea than God's. Um, but Uh, The good news is, if you've ever found yourself in that situation and you've ever come through the other end of it, realizing that maybe God's idea was best after all, um, that you're not alone. Even in in the Bible, there are people who think that they've got a better idea 
than God's idea. And so we find this, for example, in Genesis chapter 16 with a married couple, Abram and Sarai. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 16. And uh, Abram's wife, Sarai, she decided she had a better idea than God's plan. And so we read in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian servant woman whose name was Hagar. And so up to this point in the narrative in the book of Genesis, it's a big deal. It's a big part of the storyline that Abram and Sarai are advancing in age. She's now past her childbearing years. Uh, They can't have any kids. They haven't had any kids. And yet God has promised Abram that he's going to be the father of many nations. Well, how is this going to work out if, if uh, they have no kids? And so they continue to advance in years because, as we know, uh, time never stops. It doesn't stop for any of us, no matter how much we might wish it would. It didn't stop for them either, and they're advancing in years, and they still don't have any kids. And uh, we're told in verse 1 that Sarai, and you've got to remember, Abram and Sarai were very wealthy, but Sarai had an Egyptian servant woman whose name was Hagar. And you wonder, how, how did this come about? How did she get an Egyptian servant woman? Well, uh, some years before, a few years back, uh, and we're told about this uh, in the Bible, that uh, Abram and Sarai, there was a famine in the land of Canaan. They decided to escape and go to Egypt because, of course, the Nile River is there, and there's not going to be a famine that drives up the Nile River. So they go to Egypt, and uh, on the way there, Abram has another idea, and he tells Sarai, hey, when we get there, by the way, uh, just tell them you're my sister. Uh, don't, don't, let them, don't let anyone know that you're actually my wife. And so that's the plan, and they work the plan. And so uh, this is done in order to spare Abram's life, because if they were married, Abram was fearful that someone might kill him and steal his bride. And so, but if, but if he is uh, just seen as her brother, then okay, then there's not a problem there. We can still have the woman. And so they go there, and Pharaoh, king of Egypt actually, takes Sarai as his own wife. Well, then God wasn't real pleased with that, and God opposed Pharaoh and uh, cursed Pharaoh, and Pharaoh finally figured out what was going on, that uh, Sarai was actually married to this man Abram. And Pharaoh wasn't real happy about it, but he sent them out of the land back to Canaan. And along with that, he gave them lots of treasures, lots of animals, and at least one servant woman by the name of Hagar, probably many servants. But Hagar was among them, and Hagar became Sarai's servant woman. And so here we are a few years later in chapter 16, verse 1. Here's the situation. No children for Abram and Sarai, but Hagar's on the scene. You might see where this is going. Verse 2. So Sarai, here's her big idea, she said to Abram, her husband, Now behold, Yahweh, that's the Lord, has shut my womb from bearing children. Notice who she blames. She blames God. But nevertheless, Yahweh has shut my womb from bearing children. Please go into my servant woman. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And so this is her idea. She comes over to Abram, and the conversation went one of two ways. I mean, we're not told the details of the conversation. But either she came up to her husband, Abram, and said, Hey, Abram, you know, uh, my, my servant woman, uh, Hagar, uh, you, know, you know, this very young, voluptuous, beautiful woman named Hagar. And he said, Yeah, okay. 
Well, I got an idea. I want you to have a child with Hagar, and I'll count that child as my own. This is how I'm going to have a child. And either the conversation went like that, and Hagar, or excuse me, Abram said, all right, and just went ahead. Uh, or, we're not told the details, but I think there might have been a little bit more going on that we're not told about. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall to hear that conversation, where Sarai comes to Abram and said, Oh, honey, yes, dear, I have an idea. How much is this going to cost me? Nothing at all. I have an idea. Here it is. You know Hagar? Yes. I would like for you to have a child with Hagar. That way I can have a child because since I own Hagar, I will own the child too. And Abram looks at her and says, is this a trick? And she's like, no, I'm serious. I want you to have a child with my maidservant. And Abram says, no, 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 no. You're going to get mad at me. You're, you're setting me up. You're going to get mad at me if I do this thing. And she's like, no, I, I won't get mad. Do you promise you won't get mad? I promise I won't get mad. Are you sure about this thing? Yes, I'm sure about this. Just do it, okay? All right. I'll do it. But I won't like it. Okay, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Just go do it. All right, I'll, I'll do it. But remember... Honey, I'm doing this for you. And so somehow the conversation went one of those ways. And nevertheless, here's what we read in the rest of that verse. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, this is the second time in Genesis that we're told that a man listened to his wife. The first, as you might know, was Adam and Eve. And we know how that turned out. Not very well. And gentlemen, I'm not saying that you should not listen to your wife. Okay? In fact, I want to be fair. In Genesis 21, which we haven't gotten to yet, God tells Abraham to listen to his wife. Okay? And so, what do we make of this? What we make of this is this. Gentlemen, sometimes you and your wife are on the same page with God. And sometimes your wife might not be on the same page with God. If what your wife says disagrees with what God says, go with God. And I know what you're thinking, men. You're thinking... Well, won't that make her mad? Yes. She will be mad if you tell her no. She will be mad. And you're thinking, well, I don't want her to be mad. Well, what you want has nothing to do with it. Okay, here's the reality. And here's what we're going to find out in a minute. When your wife and God disagree, your wife is going to get mad sooner or later. 
She's either going to get mad because you told her no, or she's going to get mad after she gets what she wants and it doesn't turn out well. She's going to get mad one way or the other. We're going to see this with Sarai in just a minute. And so, gentlemen, if your wife and God disagree and she's going to get mad anyway, you might as well obey God right from the outset and tell her no. But that's not what Abram did. He listened to the voice of Sarai, who had a better idea than God's. Well, verse 3. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant woman, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. Pay close attention to that. Hagar is now Abram's second wife. Hagar is still Sarai's servant, but she's also Abram's second wife. A complicated mess of things. Very unique situation. And so Sarai was the one who gave Hagar over to be Abram's wife. Normally, who gives a woman over? It's the, it's the father of the bride who gives the woman But now it's the owner, it's Sarai, who gives Hagar over because Sarai had the authority to do what she wanted with her servant. And so now Hagar is both Abram's wife and Sarai's servant. And then we read in verse 4, the first part, So he went into Hagar and she conceived. Well, okay, so here, the plan worked. Let's see how this goes. Now everybody loves a train wreck as long as it's not in your backyard, right? And what we have coming up is a massive train wreck, if you couldn't see where this story was going in the first place. So now we get to see the aftermath. Hagar has conceived. She is with child. And verse 4 continues, Then she, that's Hagar, then Hagar saw that she had conceived. So her mistress Sarai became contemptible. In her sight. Sarai became contemptible in the eyes of Hagar. Literally, it says this that Hagar looked at her mistress Sarai as if Sarai was cursed. God gave me a child. What's wrong with you? God must love me. Why doesn't God love you, Sarai? God has blessed me with a child. God must have cursed you, Sarai. Well, this whole mess has created problem number one. You have strife. Between two women. And if there's ever anything you want to avoid, it's strife between two women. Sarai is furious. She is furious at Hagar. She hates Hagar. And who's she going to take it out on? Abram, her husband. Right? Verse 5, 
And Sarai goes to Abram, and she said to Abram, May the violence done to me be upon you. I gave my servant woman into your embrace, but she saw that she had conceived. So I became contemptible in her sight. May Yahweh, may the Lord judge between me and you. Can you imagine what that dialogue was like? Abram's like, you said you wouldn't get mad. I don't recall that at all. But Sarah, this is exactly what you wanted to happen. Oh, now you're telling me what I want. Hmm? Abram's like, how is this my fault? Because it is, you dirty old man. I hope you're happy. Well, if there's one thing that nobody is, it's happy. Everyone's miserable. Problem number two, strife and marriage. So listen to what Abram says back to Sarai. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant woman is in your hand. Do to her what is good in your sight. Look at what Abram calls Hagar. Abram does not call Hagar my second wife. He doesn't even say passive-aggressively, the wife you gave me. He knows better than that. But he calls Hagar your servant woman. He is washing his hands as best he can of any kind of relationship that he might have had with Hagar. Do to her what is good in your sight. She's your servant woman. She's your slave. Treat her like you want. Well, now, now the binds are off. The chains are off. Now Sarai is free to abuse Hagar as much as she wants without fearing that she might be abusing her husband's other wife because her husband has washed his hands of the whole deal. She's your servant. Do what you want. So, we read in verse 6, Sarai afflicted her, and she, Hagar, fled from her presence. Sarai abused Hagar her servant so badly that Hagar ran away. This creates problem number three. Problem number three is this. The child that Sarai wanted, it ran off into the desert now. Hagar's pregnant with the child that Sarai wanted. The heir that Abram thought he was going to get off like the wind, into the desert, potentially never to be seen again. I mean, if this whole situation isn't a mess, it'll do until the mess arrives. So things have gotten about as bad as they can get, which, by the way, happens every time you think you've got a better idea than God's. Not going to work out well. 
Nevertheless, when things reached their lowest level, that's when the Lord intervened. We read in verse 7. Now the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, found her, that's Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Shur was a very big desert to the south. And so Hagar's just running. She doesn't have a plan. She doesn't have, she doesn't have her possessions. She doesn't have anything. She just ran. i got to get out of here. i got to save my life. So she runs off into the desert, and, and providentially, in this big desert, she comes across a spring of water. I think the Lord had his hand in that. And that's when the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, showed up. Now, people want to know, who's the angel of the Lord? Well, there's, that's a great study that you can do sometime. I have a tendency to believe that the angel of the Lord was, as some ancient uh, Jews believed, was actually a second personage of Yahweh. In other words, uh, as a Christian, I believe the angel of the Lord may have been Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. But whoever the angel of the Lord may have been, regardless of that mystery, this is a representative of God himself. So a representative, the angel of the Lord, shows up with Hagar, and he said to her in the next verse, Hagar, Sarai's servant woman. How did he know? She didn't identify herself. The Lord knows. Hagar, Sarai's servant woman. Where have you come from, and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return. Return to your mistress and humble yourself. Under her hands. Moreover, the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your seed so that they will be too many to be counted. This is a promise almost identical with the one that the Lord gave Abram. When the Lord said, Come outside, Look at the night sky, count the stars if you can count them, so shall your seed, your descendants be. And now the Lord is saying to Hagar, your descendants will be too numerous to count. Verse 11, and the angel of Yahweh said to her further, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has heard your affliction. The word Ishmael means God hears. God hears. What a beautiful idea that God hears. We're going to come back to this in just a minute. And then the Lord said, the angel of the Lord continued, he said in verse 12, And he will be a wild donkey of a man. Uh, you ought to read this in Young's literal translation. It's fantastic. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will dwell in the face of all his brothers. Think about this. 
the Lord is promising Hagar a child, Ishmael. What is, what's Ishmael going to be like? He's going to be uncontrollable. He's going to be a wild donkey. Well, what's a wild donkey? Out in the desert, out in that land, if there's any animal that the shepherds, that the people do not want to try to tame, it's the wild donkey. It's the donkey living off of the land that anytime you get close, it's just going to bray and kick. It's just not worth it to try to tame an animal like that. That's what Ishmael's going to be like. And he will, his hand will be against everyone. That means he's going to fight everyone, and everyone's going to fight him. This guy is just going to be uncontrollable. And he will dwell in the face of all his brothers. This is the idea that he's getting up in your face, and he's telling you what for. He's defiant toward everyone. This is what Ishmael is going to be like. And so in verse 13, Then she called the name of Yahweh, who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? What she literally said was this, You, O God, See me. You see me. What a powerful truth. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like you've been dealt a bad hand in life? Have you ever felt like no one understands what you've gone through? Hagar felt that way. Hagar never chose to be Abram's wife. It wasn't her choice. Hagar never even chose to be Sarai's servant. She was probably born into slavery and then became the slave of another. Hagar must have felt like a pawn in the hands of powerful people. She must have felt like a nobody. And now she's pregnant She's been abused, and she's in the middle of the desert, and no one cares. And she's going to die, and no one cares. No one even sees her, except God. God sees her. And so, she does something incredible in this verse. She gives God a name. You are the God who sees me. Have you ever felt like that? Like no one loves you. No one cares about you. No one listens to you. No one even sees you. God does. God is the God who sees you. And if God sees you, God will listen to you. If he sees you, he will look after you. If he sees you, he will provide for you. And if he sees you, it means God loves you. 
So then she did something remarkable in the next verse. We read, therefore, the well, right there in the middle of the desert, the, the spring, this well, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is, behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. The, this well translates to this. This is the well of the living one who sees me. And it was known by that name throughout generations. The well of the living one who sees me. You know, when you encounter God in some remarkable way, in some way that changes your life, it's good to mark that in some fashion. And so we read in verse 15 and 16. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of a son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Now Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Abram named the boy what God said to name the boy. Ishmael. God hears. I want you to know something. What did she say? What did she name the well? What did she say to God? You're the God who sees me. And the child is known as God hears me. I want you to know today that God is the God who sees you. And God is the God who hears you. Sometimes people wonder, how can I know? How can I know God really loves me? How can I know? Do I just have to take it on faith? How can I know that God loves me? He sees me. He hears me. Here's how we know. Because God sent His Son into this world to become one of us. And Jesus went through the same types of struggles and temptations and challenges that you and I face. Jesus suffered unjustly. He died on a cross to pay for our sins, even though he had no sins of his own. And the Bible tells us that Jesus rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven, and he is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. How do you know that God loves you? Because Jesus died on a cross for you. That's how God proved his love. By becoming one of us and taking our sins away through the cross. How should you and I respond? We should respond in faith. We should trust in the Lord today.